Hello and welcome to this episode of Climate 201 from Physical Attraction, where we are going to be finishing our series on Project Drawdown, the drawdown.org you can find their book at, and this is the quantitative list of solutions for mitigation of emissions of greenhouse gases and a solution to the climate crisis. So another class of solutions that Drawdown look at is energy efficiency solutions. Now we're going to do a whole series on energy efficiency, which is based on some work by Amory Lovins and the Rocky Mountain Institute, so I'm not going to repeat too much of that here. But just as a sort of idea of what we're talking about here, we're talking about things like LED lighting to replace conventional lighting, home and building insulation so that you have to use less fossil fuels in the heating of houses, high-performance glass even that can help keep buildings at a decent temperature, and using things like heat pumps that operate via electricity instead of gas boilers. We're talking about things like district heating and cooling systems, and combined heat and power systems where power plants and industrial processes that produce waste heat can actually channel that heat to buildings in the surrounding area rather than just letting it go to waste. We're talking about things like smart thermostats, more efficient transportation in terms of trucks, cars, planes, boats, and a focus on carpooling and public transport rather than individual car ownership because it really is always going to be more efficient to have 50 people in a train car than it will be to have one in a car. All of these things allow us to be more efficient in the way that we use energy and the way that we use fossil fuels to produce that energy. Now, we have a much longer series on energy efficiency to come at some point in the future, but one point I do want to make very briefly is about sexiness. Um, Energy efficiency as a solution needs to be a lot sexier than it is. Somehow, and I think you probably have your own ideas about how and why this is, we have a culture where we're obsessed with building new things, massive extravagance, excessive spending on new projects. Um, People driving around in ridiculously inefficient cars is one example, but it's pervasive through a lot of different areas. Um, And I think one thing that you can say is when it comes to politicians, a lot of politicians are keener to talk about brand new projects and uh, the development of the building of new uh, things like new renewable power generation, for example, um, as, as a, a growth-oriented mindset towards solving the problem, I suppose you'd say. And they're a lot keener to talk about the massive deployment of renewables projects or these far-off prospects like nuclear fusion than they are often keen to talk about energy efficiency. But at its root, doing things more efficiently is better for the planet and it saves money. The fact that so much inefficiency and waste remains in the systems that we build and operate is depressing, But the good news is that driving for this gives us nothing but benefits at the end of the day. Even if you were someone who didn't care about the environment at all, who didn't mind whether climate change comes and makes large portions of the Earth uninhabitable in the next century, you would still have an incentive to operate more efficiently because it saves you money. And one advantage of energy efficiency is that, of course, it does begin at home and in the workplace. There are doubtless measures you can take around your own house that are going to help from efficient lighting to smart thermostats, and you can also encourage this in the places you spend a lot of time on an organisational level. So we do have some amount of practical power to influence this. One area that Drawdown recommended that's quite interesting to touch on is telepresence, avoiding face-to-face meetings and air travel, investing in remote conferencing and remote meetings instead. Now, COVID-19 pandemic has obviously accelerated trends towards doing this, And it may be many years until the number of business trip flights actually recovers to its pre-crash, pre-COVID levels. I think this may be one of the more permanent quote-unquote silver linings from this awful situation in the last few months. But it also shows you how sometimes these transitions and these changes, (laughs) 
they almost require a disruptive shock for these things to actually take place because these behavioural changes, yes, they can happen overnight, but unless there's some impetus there to do it, they won't. This massive shift to remote working and so on would have been unimaginable prior to the pandemic and likely much slower as well. And now I'm hearing in the mainstream, there are lots of people who are saying that they're not going to go back to their centralised offices and so on. Again, something that would have been unthinkable a few years ago. So this is actually just a subset of the most important efficiency interventions that they list. There are over 50 in total, but it does take a type of picture of the sort of things that we're talking about here when it comes to the efficiency investments. Now, something else I want to talk about when it comes to drawdown is some of the things that aren't considered here in a major way, and why not? Firstly, they don't consider nuclear power as having a particularly big role to play in reducing emissions. In their projections, they expect that nuclear will continue to provide a similar fraction of the world's energy as it does today, at around 10%. And that's actually a figure that has been pretty steady for a number of decades now, around 10%. Given that this figure has remained pretty stable across the decades, and if anything it's getting harder and more expensive just to maintain and replace the nuclear fleet in countries that use nuclear power, I think this is a pretty likely projection. We're seeing, for example, in plenty of different countries, uh, the UK being one example, that the new nuclear that's actually set to come online is not really going to increase the fraction of nuclear generation that we have by a significant amount. Instead, it's really just replacing stuff that is going to go offline in fairly short order too. Drawdown takes the perspective that the risks and costs of nuclear outweigh the benefits, but they choose not to focus on it for that reason. Now, there are always going to be people who advocate much more focus on new nuclear build There has been an increasing and, to my mind, very unfortunate trend in the pro-nuclear community to be anti-renewables because they view them as competing in this low-carbon space. I would say that it's possible, particularly if research and development does finally produce next-generation fission reactors that can be built at a lower cost, that nuclear could play a larger role than they envision in the future. But you have to remember again that Drawdown is talking about changes by 2050, And frankly, the nuclear industry is starting to run out of time and lose ground to its competitors. It's been 20, 30, 40 years of people saying nuclear power is going to be the solution to climate change. And these next generation reactors are similar ideas to the ones we've had for a while in many cases. And they simply haven't come online. Now, the nuclear industry will often complain about this and say that it's due to regulation and so on. I think this is also worthy of a topic for a future episode. But Regardless of whether it's fair or unfair, that's simply the reality that, at the moment, new renewables are being deployed en masse and new nuclear is not. So Drawdown chooses to say that, in their projections, nuclear is not going to play a big role, and frankly, I think they're probably right on that. Secondly, there are obviously some types of renewable power that we didn't mention here. There's hydropower, geothermal power, and ocean power from the waves and tides. Now, they do make it into the list of solutions in Drawdown, and they're all worth developing for their own reasons, but they aren't considered to be major parts of the solution. The reason being that each of these solutions is either too expensive to deploy over alternative solutions, or is geographically restricted so that it can only generate a small amount of power in suitable regions. So, in their scenario, geothermal power, when deployed, comes in at around 10 gigatons of CO2, biomass power at around 2 to 3 gigatons of CO2 avoided, and similar for waste to energy and ocean power. So a reminder again that we emit about 40 gigatons of CO2 a year, so we're sort of talking of a quarter of a year's uh, emissions, uh, maybe a third of a year emissions between all of these different types of power um, when they're fully deployed according to drawdowns. So 
not insignificant, but also substantially smaller than the effect that wind and solar is projected to have. Obviously, there are some regions where you have substantial amounts of power that comes from hydroelectricity and from geothermal. Iceland is the example everyone points to for geothermal, where almost all of their electricity and a lot of their heat comes from that as well. And that's great, but not everywhere has the unique geography of Iceland. So barring some sort of unforeseen development in these technologies, again, I think this assessment that they will play a a small and important but not game-changing role in decarbonisation seems to be pretty accurate. Also, we have to mention here that there are some major investments that will be necessary for a green electricity grid for it to make sense and for it to be viable. So we're talking here about developing energy storage and transmission alongside developing things that will allow us to flexibly consume energy and electricity on the demand side. Now, according to Drawdown's methodology, again, these don't get ranked as part of Drawdown because they don't directly contribute to CO2 reductions. But obviously, investing in this thing is... Uh, prerequisite for the other solutions to work. So you could argue that this is something of a shortcoming of the analysis in the way that they're listing all of these things generically. But of course, what the analysis does do is it does take into account the fact that these things are needed and it does give cost estimates. But you can't um, directly attribute CO2 reduction numbers to that, if you see what I mean, because it's a prerequisite for other things to work. Finally, by and large, although the project is called Drawdown, They're really mostly concerned with what we would call climate change mitigation. In other words, a lot of this is changing our practices to avoid emissions in the future. There is, of course, some overlap between what people call negative emissions technologies, what others call nature-based solutions, and what other people call mitigation. Do you see what I mean? So does planting new forests count as negative emissions, or is it more in the realm of restoring what we've destroyed? I'm not going to litigate all of these questions here, but I will say that Drawdown is mostly about climate mitigation and nature-based solutions, and so there are lots of negative emissions technologies and negative emissions approaches that they don't consider. Here I'm talking about stuff like direct air capture, machines that can scrub CO2 out of the atmosphere, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which is this idea of burning biofuels and then capturing the CO2 and burying it underground from that burning to produce electricity, which when you capture the CO2, makes it overall a carbon-negative process. And enhanced weathering of rocks, which is another of these technologies that could be shown up, for example. Now, we're going to deal with these negative emissions technologies again in another series of episodes. The list that we've given there is by no means comprehensive. But I think Drawdown chose to avoid quite a few of these techniques because they don't really count as mitigation, and it's also very unclear how much of them would be deployed in the cases where these technologies only really exist as small demonstration plants today. And of course, it makes sense to concentrate on the things that will avoid CO2 emissions first and foremost, because the reality is that in most cases, it's going to be cheaper to avoid emitting CO2 in the first place with this kind of mitigation technique over the next few decades than it will be to rely on technologies coming along that will suck CO2 back out of the atmosphere again by the end of the century. So a lot of people will say that these are the last things you should be thinking about, and I'm inclined to agree there. I think that There are plenty of hazards that come along with thinking about negative emissions technologies as a a too prominent aspect of your mitigation. Um, Because ultimately, there are risks that, for example, the costs of dealing with this year's emissions just get pushed on to next year, that the costs of dealing with emissions from one country get pushed on to another country, or similarly with industries. And I, I think that ideally, you would not want to build any new fossil fuel emitting infrastructure 
and you would want to start changing whatever fossil fuel emitting, CO2 emitting infrastructure that we have at the moment to something that is carbon neutral, rather than allowing yourself to continue uh, embedding this dependence on fossil fuels into the systems that we're building as humans, and then try and mitigate it later on. There are going to be some cases where that's unavoidable, but insofar as you can, you shouldn't do that, particularly when avoiding the CO2 emissions is cheaper. Now, one last solution that I want to talk about that's near the top for drawdown is promoting better cookstove technology. Something like 3 billion people in the world still cook with rudimentary stoves or on open fires. This can contribute to deforestation, but it also has very significant health impacts due to things like carbon monoxide inhalation and the pollutants from incomplete burning of wood, particularly in places with poor ventilation. Now, according to the UN, one in six premature deaths is due to air pollution. And in 2010, a report from the World Health Organization suggested that 2 million premature deaths a year could be attributed to smoke inhalation from traditional cook stoves and fires. This is, of course, a problem that mostly affects women and children. The black carbon from this biomass burning contributes quite substantially to climate change as well. In part, what it does is it settles on areas that would otherwise have higher reflectivity, like Arctic sea ice and so on, and that in turn causes them to absorb more heat from the sun and therefore heats up the planet, sort of feedback loop. So again, minimising all of this biomass burning would be good if you can manage it. Part of the issue here, of course, is that it's yet another area where a lot of the real root causes here are around addressing global poverty. The reason people use rudimentary cookstoves and open fires is often because they can't afford anything better or they don't have access to electricity or other alternatives. The cost of buying some fancy new unit up front is prohibitively expensive for a lot of people. And clearly, if you're cooking on an open fire, you have very low direct maintenance costs, at least in dollars. So to make progress here, we need to provide cleaner, more efficient cookstoves and methods for cooking directly to the people who need them, and preferably either find solutions that don't cost that much to maintain, or else help pay for the upkeep as well. So, for example, drawdown points to advanced biomass stoves, noting that by forcing gases and smoke from incomplete combustion back into the stove's flame, some cut emissions by an incredible 95%, but they are more expensive and can require more advanced pellet or briquette fuels, so you can't just chop down your local tree and use that as a fuel. You need some sort of advanced fuel that will let you to do it. But obviously, if, if these stoves and these fuels aren't available, it's impossible for people to switch. Now, you can read a lot more about this issue with the work of the Clean Cooking Alliance Online, who are one organisation that I think, again, is associated with the UN that is trying to do something about this. I think it's worth flagging a couple of things up here that this particular issue brings up, which are common to so many of the individual solutions that we need to implement to tackle climate change. And I think this is really the reason that I wanted to finish with this solution in particular. The first is that actually, solving a lot of these problems does have significant co-benefits. Cutting down on coal and cars is good for climate, but it's also good for air pollution. Reducing food waste is good for reducing emissions and deforestation, but also for food security. We're continually told that we might need to find ways to produce food for another 2 to 3 billion people by the middle of the century. If we didn't waste what is produced now, there might well be enough for them already. The same is true of better agricultural techniques which will help us sustain the productivity of soils into the future. Giving access to education for women and girls 
might have some knock-on impact on population and then emissions down the line. But of course it has plenty of other benefits too, for equality and justice, for the quality of life of people on this planet, and economically as well, if this is the lens that you want to look at the world through, it also has benefits. Moving to a more plant-based diet helps stop deforestation, but it can also have significant health benefits. In other words, there are an awful lot of win-win options when it comes to climate change mitigation, and plenty of good reasons to do these things anyway. And of course, this brings us to the second aspect here, which is these concepts of inertia and lock-in. We discussed this back in the episodes on green stimulus after the COVID crisis, but it's important to remember that the reason these changes can't happen overnight is because a lot of actual work needs to be accomplished on the ground to make them happen. To make all of this happen, you have to physically do an awful lot. You have to set up and pay for the schools and the family planning centres. You need to provide that upfront investment to build the solar panels and the wind farms. You need people who are capable of building these things to be trained and educated. You need to set up the incentives and the regulations that protect the rainforests. And you need to do more than just make empty promises about tropical deforestation and planting trees. You need to convince and help 3 billion people to cook with more modern equipment. And people have to physically start manufacturing these millions of clean stoves and whatever infrastructure, electricity or otherwise, you're going to need to support them. You need to get hundreds of millions of people to stop wasting food and to modify their diets a little bit if you want to go down those roads for those particular solutions in Project Drawdown. All of these things are in some ways the civilizational equivalent of going to the gym, or saving that money for the future rather than spending it today, or installing double glazing. In the long run, you'll reap benefits that make it worthwhile, but in the short term, there is a hurdle to overcome. It won't just happen if left to market forces or vested interests to decide, in the same way as I won't go to the gym if I just do whatever I want all the time. I'll probably stay in on YouTube and watch some more cricket highlights. And the flip side of this inertia that you have to overcome is lock-in. All of these changes involve transforming systems, whether it's the systems by which we generate electricity, the systems by which we feed ourselves, the systems by which we transport ourselves around. When we're building these systems, if we build incorrectly, we're locked into using that bad infrastructure, and it becomes far more costly to change it due to the sunk cost of what's already been built. Making these bad decisions adds to the inertia of the system. And this is an incredibly general point as well. I mean, I'm not just talking about, for example, transportation systems, where you're building uh, suburbs that have a massive sprawl and bad public transport, and so everyone has to own a car so that they can drive into work every day in the transport hub. That's one example of a system that is high carbon and has inertia. Another example might be in the education system. If we're not training people to do things in a low carbon way, to install renewables, to install energy efficiency programs, to concentrate and prioritise these things, when it comes to farming, of course, if we're not training people to adopt these agricultural methods... If we're not training people to create battery-powered vehicles instead of internal combustion engine vehicles, the sunk costs here are not just financial. They're also in terms of our time and the incentive structures that we've set up for how people spend their time. 
because a limitation is always going to be the amount of human physical labor you have devoted to the project you're trying to finish. And so when we've made bad decisions in the past that haven't prioritized these things or that have prioritized short-term profit over these long-term sustainability issues, we have locked in a certain amount of bad behavior. This is not through anyone's individual fault. Perhaps they just didn't have the choice to do things in a better way. And by making the choice to do things in a sustainable way more and more difficult, you're of course pushing more and more responsibility onto individuals who probably have far more on their plate to think about than what their own personal contribution to climate change is. So the flip side of this inertia is lock-in. And when you're making these decisions, when you're building these systems, when you're building these structures, and you're locking in things and practices that are unsustainable, we simply can't continue to do that now, not in this day and age. And of course, we can see that this relates to a lot of the decisions that are going to be made in the next few years that are being made right now. If people stop relying on traditional biomass and wood for heat and cooking, and instead turn to natural gas stoves, that's going to lock in dependence on natural gas in just the same way as we've done in the West. If people build terribly inefficient new buildings, it locks in that waste of energy for the future and makes it harder and more expensive to overcome it by retrofitting. If people plant massive monoculture crops or forests rather than something more diverse, that's going to occupy that land for a really long time. If we have a market setup that demands massive production of corn or wheat rather than perennial crops instead, then you have a lot of habitual inertia to shift that, and you have to convince a lot of people to change their behaviour for that to change. As countries around the world start to approach Western levels of energy consumption and economic development, if that's fossil fueled development and consumption, we're locking in an awful lot of pain for the future. So the keys to draw down are changing those systems that already exist, that are carbon intensive, wherever we can, and making sure that anything new we build doesn't make these same old mistakes of locking in failure from the past. So what can we learn from an exercise like drawdown? As I've been at pains to stress throughout, whenever you see this kind of quantitative analysis, it will never be perfect. It can be sensitive to the assumptions that you make about how these new things are going to be adopted, if things are done to quite exacting standards, you can achieve these carbon dioxide reductions. You can explore the assumptions that are being made on drawdown.org. But the systems that we're dealing with are very complex, and, especially in the case of a lot of the agricultural and soil sciences, there's still a lot that we need to do to be able to do really good accountancy on how much CO2 is really being saved. A classic example to my mind is the biofuel standard that was set in the US, the aim of this policy was to reduce CO2 emissions from transport by saying, OK, some percentage of fuel has to come from biofuels, and this will reduce CO2 emissions from the transportation sector. Estimates, particularly those produced by the biofuel lobby, are obviously going to say that biofuels can be produced cheaply, efficiently, and with a massive reduction in the resulting CO2 emissions. But the result of the bioethanol mandate was that the big corn producers in the US invested in corn to bioethanol production. In other words, although biofuels were being produced and used, because the process of converting corn to bioethanol is inefficient, corn is not a great feedstock for biofuels to be turned into biofuels, the carbon savings were way less than they were projected to be, and in some cases may have been very small indeed. But the amount of cropland that has ended up dedicated to corn bioethanol which I think was something like 50% of US 
corn cropland at one stage for questionable benefit to the environment was massive and has clearly contributed to pressure on food prices in recent decades. And so this is an example of where you have a policy with good intentions that when it interacts with the complex system of the national and global economy suddenly gives you things that are not what you wanted at all. And so the assumptions about how well your policies will work, how quickly technologies will develop, how much they will be adopted, and how many people are going to go for whatever solution you pick, these will always ultimately owe a little to subjective opinion and assessment. Other people could come up with a different set of figures and probably find quite different ways to decarbonise society. But what an analysis like Drawdown does do is it gives us an order of magnitude estimate, a justified estimate, that outlines the assumptions we're making, and that's a much better starting place than we would have otherwise. It also shows you the full range and breadth of the systems that we will need to transform to seriously tackle climate change, but also the huge range of solutions that are already available to us that don't rely on any sort of magical technological development to work out. Jane Flegel, a climate scholar I respect a lot, tweeted as I was writing the script something that seems very relevant. She said that decarbonisation is a problem with physical systems in the world and not just a modelling problem. In other words, creating better models of how the energy sector or the agricultural and land use sector or the industrial sector or transport can contribute to carbon emissions being reduced is clearly going to help us understand what type of policies that we need to pursue. But it is necessary to get a lot of people on board to deal with this and to actually physically deal with it from business leaders and innovators to policymakers and individuals. For that to work, it's necessary for us to understand a range of people's different motivations beyond simply a desire to protect the environment and to take that into account and to set up systems that just make it easier for us to do the right thing. Our failure on afforestation, where so much has been promised and so little delivered, should be an object lesson in the fact that we can't rely on empty promises. We can't rely on an academic calculation of the technical potential of what we could do to reduce CO2 emissions and draw down carbon dioxide if everyone behaves brilliantly and optimally. We need the data from people actually doing this on a large scale. All that a roadmap like this can do is give you a rough idea of what to focus on. Many of the challenges will come with actually trying to do it. These changes really amount to a lot of transformations in big aspects of the way we live right now. It's hard to see how you get a plan that adds up to 2 degrees Celsius, or 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is the ambitious Paris goal, without serious transformative ambitions that are matched by actions on a similar scale, especially as the years tick by with continued inadequate action in many of these areas. The advantage for us, of course, is that in most cases the solutions already exist. There's no need to come up with some magic new roadmap to do this. We know what we need to do. And, of course, almost all of these transformations don't just benefit it when it comes to the climate. In many cases, they amount to simply being smarter and more well-rounded in our priorities. In many cases, they're things that we'll have to do for other reasons. To ensure food security, to prevent premature deaths from pollution, and to prevent energy from getting expensive or unattainable as fossil fuel extraction continues to get more difficult, costly, and environmentally destructive. And, as we've discussed, the co-benefits of taking these actions generally amount to living in a healthier, more sustainable, happier, safer, and even more prosperous world. What else do you need to say at that point? <laughs>
it's past time we invested in making the change. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction, the Climate 201 series. We've been covering the work of Project Drawdown. You can find them online at Project Drawdown. You can find us on Twitter at PhysicsPod and on Facebook at Physical Attraction. There is the Science Podcast Facebook page. The main place you should go, though, is the website, physicpodcast.com. There you'll find episode guides where you can find out all of the past episodes that we've produced here. You will find ways that you can donate to the show via PayPal or Patreon. You subscribe to the Patreon. There's dozens of bonus episodes that you can get access to without initially, at least, paying anything at all, which sounds like a very good deal to me. You can review and rate the show on your podcast provider of choice so that people will see nice things about the show when they find it. And of course, there is on the website the contact form where you can get in touch with me. It goes to my email and I try to respond to as many of those as I get. It's always good to hear from people, comments, questions, concerns, things they'd like to hear about, things that need explaining, things that they'd like me to respond to. All of that is good to go on the contact form on the website at physicspodcast.com. Until next time then, please take care.